Uh, before we get into the message, I do want to reiterate uh, Kyle's comment about community because uh, I just I thought of this. I w- obviously I wasn't b- able to be here at the uh, pantry distribution with the funeral, um, but Mike told me that it was it's pretty uh, pretty amazing uh, how the community kind of came together and because uh, we were we we needed help from the community because with the funeral going on because a lot of the people that typically would work. The pantry were, were obviously going to be involved with the funeral and the funeral dinner afterwards. But I, I thought, you know, isn't that interesting that uh, there we saw community at work, church community pulling together, but even our community, even even our Wellsville as a community kind of pulling together because uh, we had some kids from the school and just you know some other adults. So anyway, I thought that was uh, I thought that was a pretty pretty cool deal. So. Anyway, we are going to talk about baptism this morning, and then, uh, like Kyle said, at 4 o'clock this afternoon up at the Baptist Church, uh, we're going to have a baptism service. You say, well, why can't we have it here? Because we don't have Baptists in our name, so we, we can't baptize here. I'm just seeing if you're <laughs> Well, we, they used to have a stock tank years ago, and Otis would fill up that stock tank and then put this little electric heater in there, and uh, that's how we used to baptize people, but... Uh, I don't know if someone got electrocuted or what, but uh, they, they don't do that anymore. Uh, but no, the uh, the Baptist Church was so gracious uh, to uh, uh, allow us to to use their baptistry up there. And I mentioned to someone yesterday. I said I really need to send uh, them. A, we need to send them a thank you note because we're tapping them hard this weekend between utilizing their uh, family life center for the meal yesterday. Because because we had the pantry distribution here, so we couldn't have the funeral meal. So they they let us use their and actually set up for us too. So they they were very very helpful. But so we had the, we used their family life center yesterday, and then today we're using their baptistry. And I'm thinking, well, let's just move on up there, you know. So uh, anyway, uh, yes, we are going to be having a baptism service, and so I want to talk this morning uh, a little bit about baptism, and that's the title of the message. What about baptism? Uh, you know, most of you are familiar with the fact that there are four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What what a lot of people might not realize is that those four gospel writers actually uh, give us a different perspective of the life of our Lord, obviously just being, you know, different in personality and nature. But not only are, there, are they four different accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, they, they are also writing to four different audiences. And uh, Mark happened to be writing to uh, the Roman audience. So in a Roman mindset... Um, they're kind of like no nonsense. And when you look through Mark's gospel, uh, next time you read through there, some of the translations, I know King James for sure, so if, you're real, if you feel really brave, get a King James out and read through the gospel of Mark. But you'll come across this word immediately. And that word appears like about 55 times in the New Testament. Almost 20 of those, it appears in Mark. And that's not by coincidence. You know, Mark was kind of the, uh, he, he was probably a type A personality he was the, uh, those of you who are old enough to remember Dragnet, right? Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. Mark was like Joe Friday of, of the gospel writers because he just wanted, he, he gives us no background, no genealogy like, like Matthew and, and Luke do, you know. Of course, you know, Matthew was writing to um, a Jewish audience. Luke was writing to a Greek audience. So that would, they would be more interested in, in knowing about where Jesus came from. Mark, no, he just write to the, just write to the point, man. no genealogy. And so uh, let's go ahead and jump in here, uh, Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare, huge word, we're going to come back to that, 
Prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Now folks, John the Baptist might have eaten wild honey, but he didn't preach it because his messages were anything but sweet. John's message was a very harsh message of repentance. Repentance. That's what he preached was repentance. Let's read on. Verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I ha He's talking about Jesus there. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of Jesus. <clears throat> in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, huge phrase, we'll come back to that, when he came up out of the water, right? Uh, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. Here we have the story of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three things uh, that I want us to notice about the baptism of the Lord Jesus and Christian baptism. The preparation of baptism, the pattern of baptism, and the proclamation of baptism. So let's begin by looking at the preparation of baptism. This is kind of seen in verse 2. In other words, when I say preparation, who is prepared to be baptized, and how do you prepare yourself for baptism? What is the prerequisite for baptism? Well, let's go back and look again at the first several verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Now, this was a prophecy concerning John the Baptist, who God sent to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, please note he's talking about preparation. Preparation for what? Preparation for baptism. <coughs> Excuse me. So, just kind of underscore that word, file that word, prepare away in your mind. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Back when Mark wrote these words, any time a king, because you know you read that phrase, you know, make you know, prepare to make his path straight and so forth. Back then, any time a king uh, would travel, he would first send out a road crew to survey and chart the route that the king would be traveling. And if there were any rough areas along that path, this road crew would make them smooth. If there were hills, mountains, they would, they would kind of knock that down. And if it was too curvy, they would kind of straighten it out, you know, because they, you know, the king, you know, they didn't want to, you know, upset the king too much. They, they wanted this trip to be as smooth as possible, right? <coughs> Thank you. They would level off the high places. They would straighten out the crooked places to make the king's trip as easy and smooth as possible so he wouldn't have to endure any hardships. Now, one key word that we need to look at here when it comes to baptism is this word repentance. John says that that's something that we need to do spiritually before we invite the King of Kings into our lives. Our Lord is going to come like that to those rough, rocky, and desert places in our lives, the wilderness of our lives, and we need to make a road for royalty. We need to prepare the way of the Lord. We need to have a spiritual bulldozer that will straighten things out and make things ready for the coming of the Lord. And that bulldozer has a name, and its name is repentance. Repentance. What is repentance? 
What does it do? It's like a spiritual bulldozer. It brings down mountains of pride. It fills in valleys of failure. Uh, what does repentance do? It straightens out the crooked places of deceit. It makes a road, and that road is the road through which the Lord comes into the wilderness and the parched areas of our lives and our heart before we knew him. And he does that to bring his life and power. John goes on to say that water baptism is the outward sign that you have repented. And frankly, <clears throat> if you haven't repented, you've got no business being water baptized. I'm just keeping it real. right? You have no business being water baptized if you have not repented. <coughs> Repentance is not incidental. It is fundamental. It's not optional. It's mandatory. And it's a crucial point of obedience to something that Jesus said we should do. So what is repentance anyway? And it's kind of a, we've probably heard it, but most of us wouldn't use that in a, any given day in our conversation with someone, right? The Greek word repentance is the word metanoia. That's the English transliteration. And it means literally to change your mind, to change one's mind. But it goes even beyond that. Because after what you change, it, then it means literally to, after changing your mind, you would follow suit by changing direction. So it's like you're going this way, and you realize, oh, I shouldn't be going this way. So you turn around and go the opposite way. That's the literal meaning of the word repentance, right? So <clears throat> we must repent before we can be water baptized. We're walking along. We're kind of doing our own thing. And then we realize this isn't what God has for us. So we repent, confess our sins, and we turn around and begin to follow Jesus. That in a nutshell is what repentance is, and we must repent before we can be water baptized. That is an act that we need to do. And before we can repent, we need to be convicted of our sin. Um, see, we're not, gonna, we're not going to admit we're wrong unless we're convinced that what we're doing is wrong, right? right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts you of your sin. Uh, not just that you've done wrong, but that you are inherently a bad person. You know, I know you don't like to hear that. Aren't you glad you came to church today to hear me tell you that you guys are such bad people? <coughs> but honestly, that's why so many people struggle with Christianity. That first step is admitting that you're wrong. You know, I guess the, it's the equivalent of the, the alcoholics, the, the AA, the, the, the Christian meeting would be, hello, my name's Curtis Wright and I'm a sinner. That, that's what it comes down to. That's what it is. You just, you got to admit that you're a sinner, right? And, and, and that is hard for some people. That is hard. I mean, and, and it's interesting because even, think about this, even when we admit we're wrong in a certain area, we always throw out some disclaimers with it, right? Well, you know, I, I may not be the perfect parent with my kids, but I treat them better than I was treated. Right? But we, we throw those things out there. I may not be the perfect husband, but you know, uh, she ain't exactly no prize either. Right. I'm not, I'm not, by the way, don't read any more into that. Than that. <laughs> but isn't it interesting how we do that? Even when we'll own up to some point of you know failure or shortcoming, we want to throw out a disclaimer with it because the, we don't want to receive the full brunt of the fact that, no, we're a bad person. We are bad people. Right? Without the Lord... But look, we were born that way. You need to understand that. We were born that way. So, here's what the law says. You know, if, if you're tempted, if you're tempted to kind of, you know, defend yourself even when you admit that, now, well, yeah, I, I may not be, you know, totally, you know, right, but at least, you know, such and such. Think about this. Here, here, here's what the law says. 
So you weren't a perfect father? Death. So you weren't a perfect mother? Death. So you didn't know your parents? Death. I'm serious. That's what the law says. There was no bargaining. That, that was it. The law said you're dead. That's it. That's why Jesus had to come. He's the only one that could satisfy that. Because the law said, no, you can't keep the law. That's it. You're dead. All right. So we keep measuring ourselves. Here's what we do. We keep measuring ourselves against a broken ruler, and it gives us a false sense of well-being and overestimates our position with God. When we measure ourselves against a broken ruler and a, and a sliding standard, as it were, it makes us it's like, well, well, I'm good, right? I'm good. Yeah, there's this, but, you know, God and I, we're good. Right? Listen, uh, we're not good. And, and, and it's not really that we break the law. Here, here's, the, here's the truth. The law breaks us. The law breaks us because we can't keep it. Don't, don't kid yourself. You, we can't keep it. No one. One person, Jesus, was the only one that could keep the law. Right? So, the message of the law is that we're more wicked than we would ever imagine. So Jesus steps into the water. He who knew no sin is baptized for forgiveness. He who was high is humbled. He who created the law is judged by it. Even though we know we're not perfect, we think we're basically good people, and we're not. We're not. And the Bible's very clear about that. The Bible says none of us are good. And before we can repent, we must be willing to admit that. <coughs> Excuse me. On Sunday evening, February 6, 1983, 60 Minutes program, uh, Mike Wallace interviewed a gentleman by the name of, if I'm pronounce this right, Yahil Denur. Uh, Denur was not only a Holocaust survivor, he was a first-hand witness at the Nuremberg trials against the German military leaders who had committed those heinous crimes during World War II. During this show, the 60 Minutes, Wallace played a 1961 clip of Denur, this Holocaust survivor, walking into the Israeli courtroom where Ada Eichmann was on trial. Now, Eichmann, if you know your history, uh, was not only Hitler's right-hand man during the war, he was also the architect of the final solution, the Holocaust. Okay? Right? And he had evaded capture for years, but had finally been found and brought to justice. So, he's in the courtroom, and Denor saw Eichmann for the first time in 18 years. He had last, the, the, the last time he had seen Eichmann was at Auschwitz. Okay, was the last time he had seen this guy. Was at that notorious death camp. <clears throat> as Eichmann walked in, or as Denor walked in, Eichmann was already sitting in there. And it shows this on the clip. He stopped still. At, at one point, stopped in his tracks and began to sob uncontrollably and then fainted and collapsed to the floor. Right? So most people assume that Denur was simply overcome by that, you know, the memories, that hatred and that fear and all the horrid memories that were no doubt stirred in his mind as he set eyes on this beast, Eichmann, for the first time since he'd been at Auschwitz. A little bit later, after Denur composed himself, Eichmann asked him specifically about this. And his response has become one of the most quoted, studied, and analyzed statements in the history of the study of mankind and man's nature. Denur told Wallace that what caused him to be so overcome upon the first time since Auschwitz was that, listen to this, for the first time he saw Eichmann as an ordinary man. 
not the oppressive dictator army officer who had sent so many to their cruel deaths. Well, obviously, that Wallace was taken back by that. He said, how is it possible for a man to act like Eichmann did? He says, was he a monster, a madman, or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? Listen to the nurse's response, because this is chilling. After pausing for a moment, Denur answered, Mr. Wallace, there's some Eichmann in all of us. Isn't that kind of chilling? There's some Eichmann in all of us. And while that statement may be hard to accept for most of us, the truth is, if not for the fear of consequences or a liking of our own reputation or the healing flow of God's grace, I'm telling you, all of us are capable of any. All of us are capable of anything. Since we've, uh, we're right in the middle of a football season, I want to use an illustration that perhaps most of us can, or most of the guys anyway, some of the guys can relate to. Um, there's this thing in football called the neutral zone. All right? The neutral zone. Now, some of you could probably define what the neutral zone is if I asked you to do it. But you know, it actually changes during the course of a game depending on what's taking place. During each play from scrimmage, the neutral zone is basically the length of the football, right? And it's an invisible zone that extends out to each sideline from the spot of the football, right? Before the ball is hiked or put into play, neither team can violate or move into that space. In fact, there's only one player who can be in the neutral zone, and that's the center who's, who's holding on to the ball, right? Technically, however, the neutral zone doesn't belong to either the offense or the defense. All right, that's one neutral zone. There's another neutral zone during kickoffs. Neutral zone during kickoffs expands to cover the area between where the ball is placed to be kicked and where the receiving team's front lines can stand to receive the kick. And again, that zone varies depending on what level of football is being played, high school or college, right, so forth. Then there's one other uh, neutral zone that uh, actually is relatively new. In fact, uh, it, didn't, it didn't come into existence until 2005. Uh, and this, this actually was created because of a fight that broke out, uh, between the Atlanta Falcons, thank you, Scott Kaufman, uh, and, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, right? Scott's an Atlanta Falcons fan, or, I don't know where that came from. But anyway, seriously, back in September of 2005, the Eagles and the Falcons got into this fight before the game. So that caused the NFL to create another neutral zone, which is from the 45 yard line to the 45 yard line before the games, Teams cannot go in that neutral zone because they just want to keep them apart, right? All that testosterone building up, right? You know. So, so now some of you are like, "Gee, Pastor, thanks for the refresher on NFL neutral zones. I'm so glad I came to church this morning." So, I do have a point. I think. Where was I going with this? So, uh, here's the point. The point is simply this: in the same way, a neutral zone doesn't belong to either team, the offense or the defense. So also do many people assume that we're born into this world in a neutral zone, right? Neither belonging in heaven or hell, but in the neutral zone between them. And that's where we remain until we choose for either God or the devil. A lot of people have that view, that we're born into a neutral zone. And that's not true. That's not true at all. And see, that's the problem with that. It's wrong. The Bible is very clear about the fact that we aren't born into a neutral zone. We're born on one side, and that is the side of sin. In, in NFL terms, if the Chiefs and Raiders were playing, we were born on the Raiders' side. <laughs> I tell my son-in-law that because 
Raiders fan, right? Right? We were born into a new, we were born on the dark side. Right? Since Adam and Eve sinned, and since we're the, their offspring, we're born on the wrong side, the side of sin, and thus enemies of God. Denur was right. There's some Eichmann, there's some Adolf Eichmann in all of us. Such is our identity with the sin nature that we are dead spiritually, depraved in heart and mind, and therefore damned to eternal punishment and in need of a Savior. <coughs> Excuse me. Before being water baptized, we need to repent. We need to own up to the fact that apart from God's grace and forgiveness, we're bad people. We're basically rotten people, right? In need of a Savior. And the repentance God wants from us is a genuine repentance birthed out of what the Apostle Paul calls Godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Paul says this. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now, a lot of people have worldly sorrow, but that's not what God's looking for. <coughs> There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is when uh, we feel bad about doing something because we got caught. But after we deal with the consequences, go right back out and do the same thing. It doesn't change our behavior at all, right? If someone gets caught stealing something, they might feel bad about it for a while, but if they go out and steal again, that wasn't godly sorrow that they felt because godly sorrow would lead to repentance. They would have changed. Worldly sorrow is when you just feel bad because you got caught, right? And then as soon as the opportunity presented itself again, you do the same thing. Someone gets busted for drugs while they're sitting in jail. They feel sorry for themselves. They're feeling bad, right? Was it godly sorrow? We won't know till they get out. When they get out, if they head over to the dealer's house, we know it was worldly, right? But if, they, if the direction of life changes, then we know that was godly sorrow that led to repentance, the change of direction in their life, right? You know, I used to feel bad whenever I got caught doing something and got a whipping. Oh, by the way, I'm still alive, kids. So, yeah, I got, I got whoopings, you know, growing up. That's just how it used to be, right? Um, I, I wasn't abused, uh, but I did get spanked. You know, I did get spanked. And uh, I came out all right, I guess, fairly, right? <laughs> so, um, but anyway, uh, whenever I used to feel bad, and I got, you know, get caught about something, feel bad about it, uh, and, and my mom, uh, and my dad went at home, and my mom, you know, tried to discipline me. Uh, she, that wasn't nothing, you know. She, I said, oh, 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 you know, then I'd go out and do the same thing, you know. Now, if my dad was home, see, my dad was home, uh, that was kind of, that, that led me to godly sorrow. <laughs> Not worldly sorrow, right? I mean, my dad had a grip like a vice. He'd get me by my left arm, and you know, he he was he was gifted at this. He could take his belt off and grab me with one hand, and you know, and he he kind of uh, pulled that belt up a little bit. And and this is where I this is where I learned uh, the power of centrifugal force, uh, because I realized, man, if I stayed in close, if I grabbed onto his leg, because if I tried to run, well, see, that kind of gave him more leverage. But if I held in close to him, you know, it's kind of hard for him to get leverage on it. So there you go, kids. I won't charge any extra for that piece of advice, you know, what to do the next time you're getting a, you're whooping, you know. Um, 
But I wasn't sorry because of what I had done. I was sorry because I got caught, and I was suffering the consequences of getting caught. That's not godly sorrow. When I grew up a little bit, I learned uh, that not only was I breaking my father's laws, I was also breaking my father's heart. And uh, that kind of gives you a different perspective on, on things, doesn't it? When you realize you're not just breaking a, a rule, you're, not, you know, you're, you're breaking their heart. You know, when, when, when us parents, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Well, there's an element of truth in that. There really is. It's not like, you know, we don't get joy out of disciplining our kids. Um, but I think that that will go a long way towards helping you understand that uh, when you realize that you're not just breaking the law. And it's when, when you're talking about, you know, when you violate this, you're not just, you're not just breaking a law. You're breaking your father's heart. You're breaking your father's heart when you do that. And when I began to realize it wasn't just breaking a rule that I was breaking my dad's heart, then repentance became a little bit easier. Right? See, that's godly sorrow. Uh, the word repentance literally means a change of mind, and that's the question you need to ask yourself this morning. Have you truly repented? Have you changed your mind, and has that, changed, has, has that change of mind affected the direction you're heading? If you haven't done that, your baptism its not going to do any good. Because you didn't prepare your heart for baptism. Repentance, that's the preparation for baptism. Now, the second thing I want you to see is the pattern for baptism. What kind of baptism is New Testament baptism? Um, verses 9 and 10. Now, when, when we talk about the pattern of baptism, now listen, I really... <laughs> I always preface when I'm going to talk about something that might be controversial, I always preface it by saying, I'm not wanting to start a fight. Okay, I'm really not. I'm not wanting to start a fight. I'm not wanting to argue because, you know, this is one of those areas, one of those churchy things that people have different views on. And I'm going to tell you what I believe my understanding of God's Word is with regards to this. Okay? Um, but uh, there are people that believe differently about baptism and, and how it should be done. Right? But I want us to look at what I believe is the pattern for baptism, and I believe the pattern is immersion, being placed under the water. I could say submersion, but because most of us probably understand that word a little bit more than immerse, but there's a difference between submersion and immersion. When you submerge something, you don't necessarily come back up. So everyone say, thank God that this is immersion, not submersion, right? Okay? Uh, so my understanding of the New Testament baptism is baptism by immersion. Uh, that's, that's not just one of the ways, uh, that is the biblical way that I understand the pattern for being baptized. Since Jesus is our example, right, let's look at his baptism. Notice in verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized of John in the Jordan. See that? In the Jordan. In, I looked at that word, in, in the Greek, you know what it means, Mike? In. In. It means in. Not near, not with. But in the Jordan River. Do you see that? Actually, the, the, the Greek, the preposition of the word, it, it literally is translated into the Jordan. That's how it should be read. Into the Jordan. After Jesus was placed into the Jordan, Mark says that as Jesus was coming up out of the water. Do you see that? Now, question. If he came up out of the water, where do you reckon he was before? In the water. Right? You don't baptize a person until you immerse them in water, until he goes down into the water and comes up out of the water. 
Incidentally, why do you think that John chose the place where he was baptizing? Just oh, random, just, you know, I think I'll baptize there. He had a reason for being there. And I want to assure you that it was not because it was a beautiful place. I've seen pictures of it. I've talked to people that have been there. Jordan River is not the, all that picturesque. Think uh, Wakarusa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's areas along there where it might look okay, or Meridazine. There's areas, but you know, it's, it's not like it's some exotic, you know, right? In fact, it's one of the most forsaken places you'll ever see. Neither was it a convenient place to baptize. So if it wasn't attractive and it wasn't convenient, why did John go out there to baptize? Let's read it. Maybe we can find out. John 3, 22 and 23. <coughs> John tells us why John the Baptist baptized in the Jordan River. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. You see that? Water was plentiful there coming and being baptized. If you look at a Bible map, you'll see that this, these places he's talking about, there, Anon near Salim, is near the Jordan River. I believe that the reason John went all the way down there was to find a place where the water was deep enough to baptize. That's why he went there. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't pretty. Right. Now, you're all smart people. You know how I know you're smart people. How do I know you're smart people, Josiah? Because you go to church here. So I know you're all smart people. Okay? Now, <clears throat> you know that in the city of Jerusalem, there was water to drink. There was water to do dishes, water to bathe, right? Water to do clothes, laundry, right? They could have baptized there. No. Why? Because there wasn't enough water, right? They had enough water to do dishes, do laundry, but they had to find a place deep enough where you could baptize by immersion. Jesus took a trip 60 miles one way to be baptized. John was out there baptizing in that spot because it provided enough water to immerse someone completely. John didn't baptize in the Jordan because it was pretty or convenient. He baptized there because it was the closest place that had enough water to immerse someone in baptism the right way. All right. See, you know, I could shoot. I could take this cup right here and go around and baptize all of you according to some people's understanding, right? It takes a lot of water to baptize the right way. What is the Bible method of baptism? It's by immersion. I believe by immersion. Now, looking again to Jesus as our example and the fact that he allowed himself to be water baptized by John, let's take a closer look at this because this has been kind of the source of much debate in the church over the years. In fact, some churches have established their doctrine of baptism based on this event. To understand how this confused, I'm going to do a real quick history lesson because it's kind of hard. How, how did all this get started anyway, right? To understand how this confusion and debate got started, we need to kind of have a short history lesson. So the word baptize to this day, now think of it, the word baptize to this day is still not even a translated word in our Bibles. Did you know that? I bet you didn't know that. The word baptize is not a, a translated word in our Bibles, in our English Bibles. In 1611, King James, all right, King James issued a decree that he wanted the Bible printed in English. Sounds great, right? And we ended up having the what? King James Bible, right? So a bunch of scribes were hired to translate the Bible as it existed at that time into English. The result of that effort is what we know today as the King James Bible. But we need to keep in mind King James. We need to understand a little bit about King James, all right? King James was a member of the Anglican Church. 
right? And the Anglican Church sprinkled people when they baptized, okay? So, you got the king who uh, goes to a church where they sprinkle, but he orders these scribes to translate the, 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 the Bible into uh, English, right? So, um, so they're going along there, and the scribes are, you know, kind of going along, and, uh, and we need to understand something about that, that word, uh, baptizo, okay, because that is the word that, that they used, that they came up with, which wasn't even a word before that. Baptizo wasn't even a word till they came up with it, right? It, it, it didn't even become a religious word till the translators working for King Jimmy conveniently left it out of their English translation of the Bible, right? Before then, baptizo was a common household word. It was. When a woman would do her dishes, the word that was used was baptizo. She would baptize her dishes, right? There's actually a document, a historical document, where a guy was accused of murdering someone else. He, he drowned the person, and you know what word they used to describe how he murdered him? Baptizo. Now, I, I, you know, unless you're wa- waterboarding someone, I don't know how you can drown someone pouring water on them, right? Now, those of you planning on getting baptized later on this afternoon, uh, I do want to have a meeting with you just right after the message here so I can just kind of go over a couple of things. Uh, but um, that word, baptizo, um, it didn't even exist in our language until the scribes had to come up with something because when they came up with that, they said, we can't put that in the Bible. We can't put that because if we put that, we know that the guy who hired us sprinkles. If we, if we write baptizo, he'll kill us. Because he doesn't believe in immersion like that. So now they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because the king practiced sprinkling and he was the one who commissioned the job. Alright, if we, if we translate it sprinkle, everyone who knows Greek will laugh us out of the kingdom because everyone who can read Greek knows that that's, that's not sprinkle. Right? But if we translate it immerse, it'll be embarrassing for the king, so what do we do? They said, I don't, we won't translate it up. We'll transliterate it. That we'll take the Greek word and make a new English word. And that's how they ended up coming up with this word baptism, right? So when you see that word baptism, that is a Greek word. Every time you read it in the Bible, you are reading a word that hasn't been translated yet, right? And you have to translate it in your own mind. And when the Bible says that Jesus came and was baptized by John in the Jordan, the Greek language, first by John into the Jordan, you don't find sprinkling taught anywhere in the Bible, people. You won't find sprinkling taught any. Now, in the Old Testament, there's some ceremonial washings where they sprinkled. Completely different thing. Completely different. Right? As far as I can tell, nowhere does the Bible teach sprinkling for baptism. Right? Now, that's the third point. The proclamation of baptism. The proclamation of baptism. Had the preparation for baptism is repentance. The pattern for baptism is baptism by immersion. And finally, let's talk here about the proclamation. What does baptism proclaim? What does it picture? Two things. Identification. Matthew 3, 13 and 14. The question often arises, why did Jesus have to be baptized if he was sinless? If water baptism is a picture of our old sinful nature being buried, then why would Jesus need to be water baptized if he was sinless? He obviously didn't have anything to repent of, right? In fact, when John was baptizing people in the Jordan River that one afternoon and looked up and saw Jesus standing there waiting to be baptized, he said, hey, I shouldn't be doing this, 
Right? Remember that? He said, I shouldn't be doing it. You should be baptizing me, Jesus. I can't baptize you. And John went on to say, I'm not even worthy to untie your shoelace, Jesus. And you come and you want me to baptize you? Now, think about this. Do you know who John was? John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Wasn't he? Now, think about this. They were born about the same time. They grew up together. Now, don't you think that if Jesus had been a sinner, don't you think John would have known that? I mean, you can maybe hide it for a while, but at some point, don't you think that if if that were the case, if Jesus had been a sinner, that John would have known about it? No, Jesus wasn't a sinner. He was the Son of God. Why then was he baptized? Now, this is important because why Jesus was baptized has a lot to do with why you ought to be baptized. Because baptism points to identification. When Jesus was baptized, he was identifying himself with us. When we're baptized, we are identifying ourselves with him. And there's a very real sense in which we meet Jesus in the waters of baptism. Now, let me say, <clears throat> I'm not saying that we're saved by water baptism. No, that's, that, that, that doesn't happen. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. Okay? But I am saying that there's a very real sense by which we meet Jesus in baptism. By allowing himself to be water baptized, Jesus was identifying himself with us. Now, why would he do that? Because it was all part of the master plan of God's will. He came to take our place. He was our substitute. And you see, there was a mortgage against us that we couldn't pay. We couldn't afford. And when Jesus was baptized, he was signing his name to that mortgage. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for it. I'll cover it. It's on me. He says, I'll pay it in full. I'm identifying myself with these people that I've come to save. I'm not a sinner, but I am identifying myself with these people. And it was a picture of the coming death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're going to see here in just a minute. Water baptism is a picture of identification. Jesus identifying with us and us identifying with him in his death and resurrection. The other thing water baptism proclaims is the reason why baptism must be by immersion. Romans chapter 6. And this is burial and resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more kindness and forgiveness? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in sin? Or have you forgotten that when we became Christians and were baptized to become one with Christ Jesus, we died with him? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised as he was, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, what does baptism picture? When you understand what baptism pictures, you understand why it's got to be immersion. It has to be immersion. First of all, it pictures his sacrifice. In verse 5, look at this. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Do you see that? Romans 6, 5. What, what, what is baptism? Baptism. It's the likeness of his death. It's the likeness of Jesus' death. And it's the likeness of his resurrection. The baptistry that we're going to be using this afternoon, right? The beach at Hillsdale when we did baptisms. The shallow end at the pool over here when we've done baptisms over there, right? When a person goes under the water, and the waters of baptism, that is a picture of death and burial. When a person comes up out of the water, that is a picture of the resurrection of that person. All right. Everyone look up here at me. If you started to, started to drift, started to 
Wonder if Mahomes' knee's going to be alright tomorrow night. Lock back in for a second. Alright? I'm going to ask you a question. If water baptism is a picture of a burial and resurrection, going under the water is a burial, coming up out of the water is a resurrection, if that's what baptism is supposed to be a picture of, supposed to be an accurate portrayal of, how do you do that by sprinkling? How do you do that by pouring water over someone? It's a fair question. Paul, not me, Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, said that water baptism is supposed to be a picture of a burial and resurrection. It is the likeness of his death, talking about Jesus, and it's the likeness of his resurrection. <coughs> See, pictures are very helpful in helping us understand certain things, right? If we hear something but don't understand it, we kind of scratch our heads and wonder. But if we can see a picture of it, we usually understand it. Now, if someone had never seen my wife and asked me if I had a picture of her and pulled out my iPhone and pulled this picture up, pull that up, Brett, And they'd say, oh, your wife kind of looks like a Christmas tree. Or your wife looks lit. <laughs> All right? Are you sure that's your wife, Pastor? And I'd say, well, you know, it's close enough. It's close enough. Any picture will do. No. A picture is supposed to accurately portray something. Now put up that next picture and look at that smoking hot lady right there. Yeah. Right? Well, what difference does it make? I'll tell you what difference it makes, folks. If there's any message, again, we're talking about the importance of this, what it is a picture of and why we do this, why we immerse. If there's any message that the devil, I think, would like to take out of the church, I think it would be this message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there's any picture that God wants to keep in the church, what do you think it is? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? That is why every time anybody gets saved, God says, I want you to show over and over and over again what saved you. The likeness of his death, the likeness of his resurrection. You see, his death had my name on it. His death had your name on it. When he died, he died for us. When he rose, we rose with him. That's what baptism means. It's a picture of his sacrifice, and then it pictures my salvation because I'm identified with the Lord. I have been saved. Notice what the Bible says here in verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, and that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This afternoon at 4 o'clock, that baptismal tank up there at the Baptist church is going to be converted into a liquid tomb. All right? An H2O cemetery. Because we're going to be leaving a couple of dead bodies in there, spiritually. Spiritually. And a couple of new creatures are going to be coming up out of that water in the resurrection and power and newness of life that Jesus said would be ours when we followed him in obedience to water baptism. You see, the real profession of faith is not walking down an aisle. It's not raising a hand, praying the sinner's prayer, raising a hand, walking down the center aisle, shaking the pastor's hand, right? The real profession of faith is when we identify ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the real profession of faith. That is the Christian's coming out party, as it were. That's us going public. We're going public. 
I am not ashamed to identify myself with my Lord and Savior who was willing to die for me. Stories told of a little boy who was in children's church one Sunday, and at the end of the service, the children's pastor asked anyone if they'd like to pray to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This little boy raised his hand. Teacher prayed with him. When she got done, she's told him, now, now when we dismiss, I want you to go over there and tell the pastor that, you, that you've been saved and you want to get baptized. So he went over and he, he got a little confused and he says, Pastor, I got saved and now I need to get advertised. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. That, that's what he was doing, advertising, right? And here's one last thing, and we'll finish with this. Another benefit of baptism is how it can really unlock so many other things that God wants to do in our lives. See, here's what we need to understand. And look, I've been doing this for a long time, right? And here's what I've learned in these years of hearing people's excuses for not being water baptized. I'm not one to be insensitive here, but I I really need to press this. If you've never been water baptized, you need to ask yourself why, you know? Because here's the deal. If we choose to disobey God on this very simple but important command to follow His example that He set forth for us by example, if we choose to obey Him here, I believe it will hinder the rest of our walk with Him. Right? You think, from God's per- look at this from God's perspective. If you refuse to be baptized, I think it's going to hinder your spiritual growth. It can't help but hinder it. Why? If we won't obey God's command in this very simple, easy-to-understand command to be water-baptized, up front, at the very beginning of our, of our walk with Him, well, why should He trust us with anything else? If we're going to say, not, nah, what else you got? Seriously, that is one of the first, repent and be baptized, and right at the beginning, if we're going to put a hand, say, not, nah, can't do it. I really think that that affects our ability to, to grow in God. What's to keep us from disobeying in some other area? I mean, how this is one of the simplest areas we could obey him in. Some of you that, and this happens to all of us at times, but how, some of you that maybe struggle when you're reading the Bible, man, sometimes I just don't understand it, you know. I mean, let, me, let me tell you something. If you haven't been water baptized, I submit to you that maybe you should consider getting water baptized. Because why would God be, if you pray, God, I don't understand that. Uh, can you tell me what that means? And God's like, why should I tell you what that means? You, you won't obey me in the other areas. I'm not saying he does it. I'm just saying I can see from God. You see this from God's perspective. If from the get-go we're going to tell him no, what kind of relationship is that? It, start, it kind of starts out tenuous, doesn't it? If, 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 we're, if he knows we're going to say no, oh, what, what else are you going to say no? What else did I ask you to do that you're going to say no on? That's why this is huge, people. This is huge. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, have never been water baptized, I'm just going to throw it, you're, you're walking in disobedience. I don't say that judgmentally, I'm just stating a fact. Because Jesus said you should do this. Okay? And you can take care of that today, later, right? This afternoon. So, um, we're going to uh, pray and be dismissed. And those of you that would like to be water baptized, those I've already talked to, and if, even if I haven't talked to you, if God spoke to you through this message and it's something that you want to do, uh, I want to meet right up here in this front row, go over some basic instructions for when we meet later on at, at 4 o'clock. Let's all stand. Lord, I do pray that you would um, 
move upon the hearts. If there's anyone here who's never been water baptized, for whatever reason, maybe it's fear. I, I mean, and, and I'm not making light of that. I understand that. I, I get that. Maybe it was just lack of knowledge. I, I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here who has never been water baptized, has not followed you in obedience, and the example that you set by being baptized, even though you didn't need to be, I pray, Father, that we'd be willing to respond in obedience and follow you in that ordinance, that sacrament, Lord. And if you're here this morning, today, and you've never uh, taken that first step, you've never repented, never invited Jesus Christ into your life, um, you, can, you can take care of that now too. <coughs> the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. But it's got to be sincere. It's got to be genuine. So if you're here this morning, you've never, you've never prayed that prayer. Maybe you've never heard this before. I'm going to give you the opportunity. It's just a very simple way. You just tell God, God, I, I now recognize that, that, that there's a gap between me and you, and it's because of my sin, and, and I am basically not a good person. So, Lord, I pray that you would help me to uh, live my life for you. I invite Jesus to come into my heart and to help me to begin to live my life for you. And I believe you to do that in Jesus' name. And if you just prayed that prayer or something similar to it, I want you to do this for me. Would you take out one of those cards on the back of the chair in front of you and just there's a place on there that you can say, I prayed to receive Jesus. Or, and or, if you would just turn to someone. Turn to someone after, after I dismiss you here in a second and say, hey, I prayed that prayer with the pastor. Or you can come tell me I prayed that prayer because we want to help you in your walk with God and your next steps. So, Lord, I pray that you would go with us now and uh, help us, Father, to continue to... Uh, Look to you, the strength of your Holy Spirit, and the guidance of your word to, to guide and direct our lives. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, and uh, those of you that are going to be water baptized or interested in being water baptized, if you just come up here to the front, we'll have a very quick meeting.